Coming up on today's show, a rare moment of unity in the Alberta legislature as all MLAs put aside the day's political business and spoke unanimously in condemning hatred of Islam. Also, what about terrorism charges? A lot of talk that this young man involved in the incident in London should be charged with terrorism. There's a legal threshold involved there. And trying to decide if you should mix and match for your second dose will have everything you need to know about sticking with AZ or switching over to an mRNA. Yesterday, we spent a lot of time talking about division and the us versus them politics that are causing so many problems in our society right now. Well, all of that fell away in the Alberta legislature yesterday afternoon as all of the MLAs agreed to put aside the day's business in the afternoon, whatever they may be fighting about, and focus on what happened in London. And they unanimously supported a declaration of condemnation on Islamophobia. And then they talked personally about what this meant to them and their experiences. And it got quite emotional. This is Premier Jason Kenney. But we have a number of Muslim members of this assembly. And I honestly just want to express um, sincere condolences to them. These are good people, Mr. Madam Deputy Speaker. Uh, they uh, represent a community that too often faces uh, casual prejudice. And the Premier then asked other members to weigh in and discuss what they were feeling. Rod Loyola, who is an NDP MLA and a Muslim, was extremely emotional in addressing the legislature. This is a direct attack on our women, our partners, the people that work with us day in and day out to make sure that That we're a strong community. I'm absolutely heartbroken. A lot more was said yesterday by all of the members, and as I said, they unanimously uh, condemned Islamophobia and talked about bringing in more legislation to prevent hate crime and to deal with hate crime. Uh, All of them acknowledging that it's a problem that we need to address and we need to be focused on. This is a direct attack on our women, our partners, the people that work with us day in and day out to make sure that that we're a strong community. I'm absolutely heartbroken. That's NDP MLA Rod Loyola speaking in the legislature yesterday, one of many MLAs uh, and the Premier standing up and giving very heartfelt and emotional commentary following the incident in London and vowing to do better in this province, uh, not only in their personal behaviour, but in their legislative abilities. So joining us now to talk more about that is Rod Loyola. Uh, Mr. Loyola, thanks so much for joining us this morning. I appreciate your time. Well, the pleasure is mine. Thank you for having me on your show. Um, You know, for a guy who's watched politics for a long, long time and is really, really saddened by the politics of division and the us versus them and the tribalism that seems to have taken over, yesterday for me was uh, a shining moment of what our Legislative Assembly can be um, when we see our leaders set aside that political bickering and come together and focus on the common good. Do you feel that that was what happened there yesterday? Well, let me be absolutely clear. I think that the community has said it best on social media this morning. 
They're saying that thoughts and prayers are not enough, and action and legislation are required. This is what people are saying. And, and you know, I, I totally appreciate and respect the fact that a lot of people, when they see what happened last night, they see, oh, we, we all got along and we managed to pass this particular motion. At the end of the day, specific legislation that the community has been asking for, I'm not talking about us as the Alberta NDP. I'm talking about the community. They've been asking for specific things like a provincial hate crimes unit, increased supports for victims of hate-motivated crimes. And even the National Council of Canadian Muslims has been requesting from this government a bipartisan committee to deal with anti-Muslim hate and racism in general, and none of that has come to fruition as of yet. So I respect that, you know, people see that, well, we, we managed to get one uh, government uh, motion through, uh, but a lot more work needs to be done. Oh, without a doubt, without a doubt. Uh, I was really interested in your commentary yesterday in the responsibility that you as elected leaders carry in the way that you conduct yourselves and the way that you engage in public debate and how you need to be very careful about the words that you choose most definitely you know i think that sometimes when we get into debate and and you may know this since you followed politics for a while is that you get into a little bit of theater right mm-hmm. and and i've even done it myself in the house and uh sometimes you know you you become very adamant about something and uh you you can stretch your words perhaps a little bit too far and i'm really calling on all politicians all across canada to really watch what they say in public debate um and you know it it happens in the legislature but then it also happens when people are having for example town halls and things like that because sometimes a particular comment from uh, someone in the public will resonate and then it kind of you know, people interpret things in a very different way depending on the context and and the space and the atmosphere the feeling of the of the uh, of where it's being communicated and what i said in the house yesterday was very clear it was that we need to be careful because even though we may not intend it as hate those people who do hate they they interpret it that way and then they go out and then they act upon that hate and we need to be very careful as legislators, as leaders in our community, that we're not contributing to that. Um, what do we need to do? Uh, you know, we, we know that the Justice Minister is planning to bring forward new measures. Uh, before the end of the week, we should have some indication. What are you hoping to see? I'm hoping to see that uh, this government, this UCP government, actually listens to the people of Alberta, and specifically the Muslim people of Alberta, which have been very clear in requesting a provincial hate crimes unit and also a bipartisan committee to actually deal with uh, anti-Muslim hate that's been happening here in, in the city of Edmonton, as well as in Calgary, all over the province. I mean, who knows about, maybe there's others that we haven't even heard about, right, that are happening in other areas, because there's Muslim populations all over Alberta, and they've been calling Alberta home for, for almost 100 years. Mm-hmm. Yeah, we think about uh, places like Lac La Biche. I can only imagine what things are happening there and how people are feeling, especially our Muslim sisters who uh, choose to wear hijab. They must be feeling very, very scared to be in public. And at least this is what's been uh, communicated to me through social media and what I'm, what I'm hearing from a lot of people. So I, I really want uh, people to know that this fear is real, unfortunately, 
this is about our religion as Muslims. We it's, we don't go around hiding our religion, right? And especially the women who don the hijab. This is something very important for them. It's a decision between them and their creator. And uh, and it, for me, it's just heartbreaking that, that women, especially in our community, are feeling fear of going out in public. What can legislation do? Uh, I, I mean, we, we have hate crimes. What... You know, I, I, honest, legitimate question. I mean, uh, you cannot stop, um, you know, uh, a person like this guy, uh, you know, in London, Ontario. And, you know, we have hate crimes. What, what, what can legislation do? How can it help? I think that what we need to do is strengthen hate crime legislation in, in Canada. So I was actively in, uh, in the House. I was actively asking the government to work together with the federal government to strengthen hate crime legislation. Uh, because what at the end of the day, these individuals, um, and I'm hoping that they can be turned around. I really am. I really am. Like my, I know this is a difficult situation. But that hate that they feel, uh, some of them have turned their lives around and they've stopped hating people just for the color of their skin or their religion. So my hope is that they can really be turned around. Um, But these people are very vocal on public forums, on social media about their hate. They preach hate. And and as you and I both know, this is is not uh, legal here in Canada to actually preach this hate. And if we had a provincial hate crimes unit here in the province of Alberta, then we could have police investigators following uh, what is being said, monitoring what is being said on public forums and in social media, and then perhaps get ahead of it. I know it sounds uh, difficult, Mm -hmm. uh, but at least it would be a small move, um, because often it's not as if these individuals just one morning decide, I'm going to get up and I'm just going to commit the atrocity that they're thinking of. I think that it it gradually, yeah, it's a gradual process of radicalization. And then on a personal level, I think it's very important that every leader in the community, every politician, anybody that has influence, do their very best to talk about racism. Like we need, we need to do, we need to have uh, a broader conversation, a deeper conversation. As I said in the house last night, around the dinner table, around the the lunch counter, at the water cooler, not be afraid to talk about these things and and learn as we go. Because when people do say racist things, you know, we we, we tend to get angry. But I've learned, uh, and especially through my Muslim faith, is that we need to be patient. We need to, with humility and respect, approach that person and say, look, what you said was racist. Here is why. I'm hoping that you can change the way that you you speak. Now, will that help? I'm not 100% sure. But, you know, if they're approached in 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 a humble and respectful way, chances are they're going to go home later on or go go elsewhere later and then really think about what happened to them yeah and being called out on racism and they're going to say you know what that person was was so um respectful in the way that they did it i could learn something from that and you know what maybe what i did say was racist so i'm going to stop saying it yeah this is my hope Right. Yeah, and it starts that process and uh, that change in thinking. Uh, Mr. Loyola, thanks so much for your time this morning. I appreciate it.
For me, it was a pleasure. Thank you for having me on your show. Yeah, you bet. That's MLA Rod Loyola, uh, one of the speakers at the legislature yesterday, talking about the incident in London and um, what we need to do here in Alberta to be better. The suspect in the deadly hit-and-run in London, Ontario, is now facing four charges of first-degree murder, one charge of attempted murder. And police in London say they do believe they have information to tell them this incident was premeditated, it was planned, and it was targeted. The victims were run down because they were Muslim. Prime Minister has said this was an act of terrorism. This morning he's talking about indications there may have been some online radicalization involved. No details on that yet. So there's a lot of discussion about bringing terrorism charges against the 20-year-old charged in this case. At this point, as we say, the murder charges have been filed. We're going to chat now with Dr. Stephanie Carvin, who is an assistant professor of international relations at the Norman Patterson School of International Affairs at Carleton University. She's done a lot of research in the areas of international law, security, terrorism, and technology. Doctor, thank you for joining us this morning. I appreciate your time. Hey, thanks for having me on. So we have these charges of murder laid. Those ones are rather obvious, but there's a lot of talk around terrorism. Now, terrorism charges can be laid down the road, right? They don't have to be done at the initial charging stage. Yes, absolutely. So uh, very recently, it's a little, little under the radar, but there was an attack of an individual he tried to stab someone to death in Sudbury, Ontario in uh, 2019. Uh, and then later on, they realized that this was an individual who was actually motivated by the incel or the involuntary celibate ideology. Mm-hmm. And they brought terrorism charges against that person in January of 2020. So, yeah, it can come later to come a couple months later. OK, um, there is a threshold, though, right? I mean, to take it from a uh, garden variety murder charge up to a terrorism charge, there is something. What is the consideration before laying that charge? Right. It is a little bit tricky. So the terrorism charge comes from legislation that was established in 2001 after the uh, 9-11 attacks, and it had a very specific understanding of terrorism in mind. So that being said, the understanding of terrorism in our legislation comes under Section 8301, and it states that an individual who does an act that is in whole or in part, right, so it doesn't have to be entirely terrorism motivated, it just has to be partially motivated, for a political, ideological, or religious reason, um, and it does so with a view of intimidating the public. So those are the three criteria that a charge has to meet. And then um, if it's assessed that this is, in fact, what has happened, a charge may be brought against an individual. Okay, so uh, there's a lot of work to be done yet. I mean, you really have to show some evidence of, like you say, larger than just an individual act. Right, exactly. So the challenge is, so a lot of the question is in this case, will terrorism charges be brought? And we don't know a lot about this individual yet that's publicly known. Uh, I'm assuming that the prime minister and various federal authorities have been briefed on this matter. This individual may have made statements when he was arrested. He also may have, um, you know, uh, the, the interesting thing is here, there's absolutely nothing about him online. And, you know, one of the first things that terrorism researchers look for is, okay, what, you know, does this individual have an online presence, a Facebook account, anything like this that would give us a hint as to what could have motivated this attack. We don't know yet, so um, they could be doing some forensic research, working with social media companies to determine if this individual um, espoused certain views. Right. And so that evidence we haven't seen yet. The challenge is, um, and, and there's a reason why I mentioned the fact that um, this, you know, our terrorism legislation was written in 2001, and that is that a lot of the terrorism ch- 
charges come from individuals before they've actually successfully conducted an attack, right? We call that, I mean, it's a little, it's a little bold here, but it, we call that in kind of the, the terrorism parlance, left of boom. So in other words, the attack hasn't happened yet. Right. And so what, what will happen in these cases, that an individual is disrupted, he may be charged or she may be charged with attempted murder or some other charge. And then on top of that, to kind of aggregate the, you know, to augment the sentencing or the, the, the level of criminality, the, that person then um, will be given a terrorism charge to make those offenses larger. Once an attack has happened, the most serious charge that we can lay against a person in the Canadian Criminal Code is murder. It comes with a 25-year sentence. And, um, you know, the Harper government introduced legislation that actually change the way that, you know, we can bring those sentences that, you know, it's not just 25 years consecutive. Um, you can actually stack the sentences. So oh, a good okay. example in New, yeah, so in New Brunswick, for example, an individual who, you know, wasn't charged with terrorism offenses, but was clearly motivated by kind of anti-government extremism. Um, he killed three police officers, three RCMP officers. He was actually given a 75-year sentence. Uh, right. So three, three deaths, three stacked murder charges. It's the longest uh, penalty for murder in Canadian history. Interesting. Um, so, yeah. So the problem is, is that like you can bring a terrorism charge after someone has conducted an offense. But the issue is it doesn't actually do much. It just kind of creates a burden of work for the prosecution. And. So there's the kind of legal rationale not to lay the charge after the fact. So another good example is Alec Manassian, who did the uh, right. you know the Toronto van attack. He was never charged officially with terrorism, you know, with with terrorism. But at that time, he'd already killed ten people. He's he's we don't know what his sentence is going to be yet, but it could be very very considerable. Um, you know, it could be technically it could be up to um, uh, 250 years because he killed ten mm, people. Yeah. Uh, plus, tried to kill a lot more. He um, was was not charged with terrorism, but at that time, Toronto officials were already dealing with what was then the Canada's largest ever crime scene. And so to actually do that extra work to prove the terrorism charge would have been just, it really wouldn't have done much for sentencing. So that's the legal rationale. But what we're seeing now from the community, particularly the Muslim community, very understandably, is they're saying, well, why is it other oh, terrorism charges are only brought against people who are Muslim and not against people who are motivated by other ideologies, particularly white men? And so the issue now is that this terrorism charge has taken on this symbolic quality, this, you know, this signi- uh, you know it signifies something. Yes. And so we're seeing pressure for these charges to be laid in this case. And, you know, we're, we're hearing that, and I, I hear from listeners every time we discuss this incident, well, what happened with the guy in Edmonton? Same thing, took the U-Haul truck, drove it down the sidewalk. The, the whole thing, the similarities are obvious. Terrorism charges were never laid in that case, though. Yeah, because he'd already tried to murder uh, quite a number of, uh, a large number of people. So I think that was probably the reason why. It's like, yeah, and, and I mean, in that particular case, I, I think the, you know, just going back, the evidence wasn't particularly clear. I mean, this is someone who, you know, uh, as far as his ideology is publicly known, he just kind of put an Islamic State flag on his van and, and then tried to drive over people. Is that enough to prove a terrorism charge? It, it's not clear. And the fact that you had already run, so, you know, tried to kill yeah. viciously people with a van, 
you know, you, you already have this individual on murder charges. Do you actually want to then do that extra work and try to prove the, the terrorism charge and, and, and go ahead? And in this case, uh, the Edmonton police decided, no, that's, that's you know, we, there's enough here. Um, so what can then happen? Uh, it's not to say, but, you know, at, at the same time, I want to be clear, it's not a black and white thing. You know, you can, a, a judge can say, well, look, there's clear evidence here that, you know, even though there's no terrorism charge, there may have been a terrorism motive. And they can, that can impact the way they then sentence people, right? So you can say, you know, maybe the terrorism charges aren't being brought forth, but you are clearly someone who was motivated by something, and that's going to, you know, impact the sentencing. And we saw that uh, earlier this year, I believe, with the individual who tried to, um, you know, attack Rito Hall uh, last Canada Day. He pled guilty, um, but the judge said, you know, there's clearly some motivation issues here going on, so that's going to impact my sentencing. So it's not entirely a black and white thing. You know, uh, just because there's no terrorism charge doesn't mean it doesn't factor into the calculus when it comes to sentencing. But I think for the Muslim community in particular, or other communities that, that are affected by by these crimes, they, they, they're a little, they're very aware of the fact that, you know, terrorism charges seem to be predominantly applied in, in some cases and not others. Interesting. Yeah. Thank you so much for your time this morning, Doctor. I appreciate it. Hey, thanks for having me on. You bet. That's Dr. Stephanie Carvin who is um, an assistant professor of international relations at the Norman Patterson School of International Affairs, Carleton University. And, you know, I guess when you get into the legal weeds, there's a lot of considerations that are made. Um, The Prime Minister calling this a terrorist act. Terrorism charges have not been laid to this point. Will they be? I guess we have to wait and see exactly how it's going to play out. And we learn more about exactly what happened and what motivated this 20-year-old to uh, carry out that horrific act on Sunday. push underway in our province to try and get Alberta to the 70% first dose vaccinated mark. We're at about 67% and AHS announcing that as of today, they're calling them vaccination blitzes are underway. The Expo Centre in Edmonton and the TELUS Convention Centre in Calgary. No appointment necessary. Just show up, drop in and they'll get you your first dose if you haven't done it yet. Of course, the 70% mark is where we throw all the restrictions off. No public health restrictions remain in effect in Alberta two weeks after we hit the 70% mark. And as I said, we're about 67%. Another wrinkle to all of this is the second dose. A lot of people are now eligible. If you had your shot in March, you're now eligible to book your second dose. If you got your shot in April, you'll be eligible to book your second dose as of next Monday. And then a couple of weeks after that, they'll move into people who got vaccinated more recently. So we're really ramping up the vaccination efforts, but we're in a unique position for people wondering what to do about their second dose, because a lot of us got AstraZeneca for our first dose. And now AstraZeneca is a little tougher to find. And they're saying you have an option You have the choice. You can get AstraZeneca for your second dose, or you can switch over to one of the mRNAs, the Pfizer or the Moderna. So what is the best choice here? Let's find out. We're going to chat now with Alexander Wong, who is an associate professor of infectious diseases at the University of Saskatchewan. Uh, Good morning, Alexander. Thank you for joining us. Hi, Shay. Thanks. Yeah, it's kind of an interesting position to be in. I think a lot of people have a lot of questions about this. First of all, um, the AstraZeneca really has had a bad rap. Um, the messaging around AstraZeneca has been terrible with the stops and the starts and the reevaluations and all the rest. So um, do you find that people have more concern when it comes to AstraZeneca? 
Uh, for sure. I mean, it's been a real roller coaster for AstraZeneca, not only, you know, sort of around the world, but here in Canada, especially. I mean, there's been a lot of sort of stop starts, as you say, a lot of changes, like with the age criteria and so forth. And it's been really hard to message all of this in a way that's, you know, consistent and reassuring for the public. I think we've gotten to a point here where we've tried to message everything again as well as we're capable of. But now with second doses, that messaging again is a little bit challenging. And so sometimes it's a bit hard perhaps to find uh, frank advice. I'm yeah. sure we're going to talk about that, uh, you know, coming forward uh, regarding what you what people should do sort of for their second dose. Yeah, so we, you're right. I mean, and now a lot of people are thinking, well, maybe I'll switch. Uh, first of all, let's, let's deal with AstraZeneca and then we'll talk about mixing and matching. Yeah. If you had AstraZeneca for your first dose and you get yeah. AstraZeneca for your second dose, um, there's no added risk. There's nothing. It's perfectly safe. Um, there is a slight, slight risk there, but there, there's no reason to come out and say, don't get AstraZeneca, right? Absolutely. So, uh, again, I mean, uh, I've kind of come out relatively sort of publicly and sort of said, you know, I think for most people in the country, an mRNA vaccine is preferred over AstraZeneca, but there's lots of reasons why people who got a first dose of AstraZeneca might want a second dose. So, for example, you know, there's no clear sort of clinical efficacy data or clinical trials around mixing and matching. It's all sort of test tube antibody-based data. You know, that data is reassuring thus far. But again, some people might just say, you know, I want more concrete data. Other people might say, you know, I didn't get any side effects with my first dose of AstraZeneca and get a second dose. That's completely reasonable. So really the messaging here, and I think what's come forward from public health officials is that, you know, either option, whether you get a second dose of AstraZeneca or a second dose of mRNA, uh, you know, either is a good option. It's a personal preference. I think for most, an mRNA is probably preferred. Yeah, I mean, so there's no reason not to get your second dose of AstraZeneca, but there might in fact be some reasons to switch over to an mRNA, right? We're seeing some really positive indicators around that. Yeah, so all the data is evolving very quickly, but, you know, and I mean, the numbers, you know, for these studies are relatively small. We're talking about small cohorts of, you know, like, you know, 50 to 100 people, for example, or several hundred people in the clinical trials and the clinical studies that have been published thus far. But all of it would seem to suggest that mixing and matching with AstraZeneca and Pfizer uh, definitely appears to be safe. There was never really a concern regarding a safety signal, but all of it seems to be very safe so far. And based on the data around sort of immunogenicity, which is kind of like antibody levels that are generated and so forth, it looks as as though mixing and matching is probably at least going to be as good as two doses of AstraZeneca and likely better. Uh, So the big UK study, which is being sort of organized at the University of Oxford, is probably going to report their antibody data in the next couple of weeks. And so there's a lot of people who are probably going to be waiting for that study to come out to sort of provide more definitive data in this space. So again, if you're someone that likes to see that, you might want to wait a bit longer, uh, you know, before sort of making the call. But uh, it certainly seems right now as though mixing and matching probably is going to end up being as good or better and more safe in the sense that you reduce, you eliminate the risk of this VITT blood clot with AstraZeneca. With a second dose, the risk is very low, one in 600,000. But Again, the problem is, is that if you get it, it's really serious. And so, you know, again, avoiding a very, very bad side effect or adverse event, even if it's exceedingly rare, is a tangible benefit. Certainly, yeah, makes absolute sense. Um, What do we know about variants? That seems to be the focus now in terms of uh, what effectiveness will mixing and matching have or sticking with one have when we see these new variants starting to emerge and causing problems. 
So that's a great question. So obviously this Delta variant, which was originally sort of, uh, you know, sort of sequenced in India, is, 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 is known probably to be the next dominant variant. It's already starting to emerge in pretty much all parts of the world, uh, you know, especially the United Kingdom. So the United Kingdom has kind of sort of been the leading sort of indicator for a lot of what is going to happen between sort of variants and so forth. And they published a huge amount of data in this space. So most of what we know about the Delta variant and efficacy of vaccines comes from there. Bottom line, I think, without going into all the numbers and super big detail, is, is that there's a huge difference, like a 30-40% efficacy difference in terms of symptomatic infection and protection against symptomatic infection between getting a first dose, whether it's AstraZeneca or Pfizer or Moderna or, uh, and a second dose. And so there is a big difference with this Delta variant in terms of your protection from getting infected with Delta variant between having one dose and two doses which is why we're starting to really message how important and critical it is for everyone to get a second dose as soon as possible. That is really going to make a huge difference in terms of reducing the number of infections caused by Delta as well as the number of severe illnesses and hospitalizations caused by Delta too. It looks like two doses of Pfizer uh, is 95 to 100% efficacious against severe illness and hospitalization. That data is still emerging for two doses of AstraZeneca. Okay, but we do know that uh, two doses of AstraZeneca provides much more protection than one dose of anything. Absolutely. Absolutely. So uh, no question that two doses, whether it's, again, two doses of AstraZeneca. The problem right now is is that we don't have clinical data around what, like, one dose of AstraZeneca, one dose of mRNA is going to do, but presumably it is going to be a lot better and comparable to, say, two doses of mRNA, for example. Um, So, uh, you know, no question that second dose, regardless of what you choose for your second dose, less important about what you choose, honestly, at this point, more important about going and getting it as soon as possible. Gotcha. Okay. Uh, we're chatting with Alexander Wong, an associate professor of infectious diseases at University of Saskatchewan. What about scarcity? I mean, we know that there wasn't a lot of AstraZeneca, and that's why a lot of the pivoting was made. Have they have they managed to come up with the fact that if you do want AstraZeneca, it, it will be available? Yeah, so I mean, I don't know exactly how it's gone in Alberta because it's been hard to try to keep up with everything. I'm here in Regina and Saskatchewan, and I know that, um, you know, again, I mean, we have relatively limited amounts of AstraZeneca, about 20,000 doses, and there's probably about 73,000 people that got a first dose of AstraZeneca here, but the demand for AstraZeneca, uh, you know, through the drive-throughs and through sort of other sort of mass immunization clinics has been probably tepid at best. Okay. So I think most people are probably pivoting towards getting an mRNA, which is entirely reasonable. Our supply of mRNA should be solid through the next couple of months, and so we should be okay. I don't think scarcity is going to be an issue. Okay, and bottom line, I guess, here, Doc, is... Uh just get your second shot. You're in a position now where you can be a little picky and choosy, but if it's going to be a big time difference, your best bet is probably to just get whatever's available immediately. I agree. I think, again, this is not a life and death decision. I I know people want to make the right decision, but it's just hard sometimes to know exactly what to do. Best thing to do is just go with your gut, get a second dose, don't overthink it, you'll be good. Excellent. All right. Thanks very much, Doc. Appreciate it. Take care. That's Alexander Wong, who is an infectious uh, diseases professor at University of Saskatchewan. Thanks for listening today. To hear any of our other interviews, you can find them wherever you find your favorite podcasts. And if you like what you hear, don't forget to rate and review us.